Welcome to Head to Toe, stories from the history and future of healthcare. Hello and welcome to a Trending Topics episode of Head to Toe. I'm your host, Marie McMillan. I'm a nurse, writer, and storytelling enthusiast with a microphone. Today, we're going to talk about legal issues in nursing. I love a good courtroom drama. I can quote my way through the movie A Few Good Men. But Tom Cruise aside, legal issues play a quiet but dangerous part of everyday healthcare workers' professional lives. My show guest today is Jeff of the NP Dude podcast. He's a lawyer and a nurse practitioner, and he's going to share with us his thoughts on the matter. <clears throat> Your Honor, I'd like to call to the witness stand. Jeff. All right, Jeff, welcome to Head to Toe. Well, I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, thanks. Let's start with you telling us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and your podcast. Great. Yeah, I, um, I've got kind of an eclectic background, if you could, if you could say that. I, I started out... Um, Back in the in the '90s, as a civil and environmental engineer, did that for about 13 years. Um, and during that course of uh, that professional life, I, I went back to law school and became a licensed attorney, and and uh, kind of got dis- disenfranchised with the government regulations and in that type of life, and really wasn't helping any individual person. Um, I made one guy really rich, and uh, didn't really really seem to to help society that much. So. I, I did a lot of soul searching, several years of, of evaluating my options of, of whether I wanted to stay in engineering, did I want to get an MBA, did I, did I want to switch gears completely, I, I thought about going to mechanics school to, to work on cars, everything under the sun, and I kept coming back to nursing. My wife is a physical therapist, my brothers are physicians, my mom's a nurse, most of the people in my life are in the medical or, or healthcare professions. And they didn't hate their jobs, which was just a weird thing for me. So, um, you know, after two years of, of soul searching and taking prerequisites in, uh, you know, my anatomy and physiologies and microbiology and all that good stuff that you need to go to nursing school, I, I did a 15-month accelerated BSN program and, and just haven't looked back since. So um, did intensive care unit for a couple of years, about five years total. And uh, during that time, I went to NP school. And so I, I am a licensed nurse practitioner. I work full-time as an NP uh, in Ohio. <clears throat> I still keep my law license active. And so I do legal work on the side to do a lot of contract reviews and medical legal ethical issues that uh, come up for us APRNs. One of the things I noticed when I was in school was that the schools don't teach the ethics and legal background that we really need to have um, to be able to practice effectively as nurse practitioners. So I said, to heck with it. I'm going to start my own podcast. So I am the NP dude. That's the NP dude, depending on what part of the country you're in. And um, that's kind of how it all took off. So um, that's kind of me in a nutshell. And uh, so I'm, I'm just here to answer questions and, and help people any way I can. Wow, what a journey. What uh so you talked it was really your family that brought you to nursing. What specifically brought you to advanced practice nursing? So, you know, that's a great question. When when I was in my undergrad nursing program, I was I was dead set on going into um anesthesia. I, I was for sure. It was it was a done deal. And then when I went to intensive care unit, which is mandatory for most programs, that you have a, several years of intensive care experience to do that, I realized I did not want to stay in the hospital. 
<laughs> that was a big part of it. I it just being seven days on or even three days on 24 hours of shifts. It's just really, really not conducive for young families. And so I applaud those that do it and do it willingly, but it was not for me, especially as a second career where I worked all the time as an engineer. And one of the reasons to going into to the position that I wanted to get to was so that I didn't have to be gone or uh, you know, absorb most of my, my free time with, with work or sleeping on odd shifts and things like that. But, um, in, in particular, why family nurse practitioner was I had just a particular knack for explaining to families and, and patients that were scared what their illness was, what the treatment plan was, and they always seemed to appreciate when I left that that, that guy really helped take care of me. And so I felt like if I could help prevent them from getting there in the first place, then that would be an awesome job. And that's one of the reasons I absolutely love primary care is that I get to keep them safe so that they do not go into the hospital, that they don't go to the ICU. We totally need people out there like you doing that as a person who works in the ICU. I totally agree with you. <laughs> and, you know, and it's it's really sad because you see so many instances where if they're, you know, just as an example, somebody CHF, if that primary care person was listening to their patient and really watching their weight and educating them to do what they needed to do to take care of themselves on the outside, most of the time those, those cases wouldn't end up there. I've done primary care in, in a family practice setting, and I've, I do adult primarily now, um, but I've treated little babies from you know, seven days old all the way up to, uh, you know, I think my oldest patient's been 102, and uh, so you know, I, get the, I get the full gamut. I'm curious, uh, what was nursing school like for you after engineering school and law school? Then you decided, huh, I haven't done nursing school. What what was it like for you? So to be honest with you, I was frustrated. And um, and, I, and I don't mean to be in a, in a negative way. I mean, it was just frustrating because I expected, I think, a lot more than what I was really going to get. And so I, I went to some really decent schools for nursing and, and in hindsight, I, you know, looking around the country and talking to people all over the country about the quality of their education, I, I really did get a decent education. But at the time, I was pretty critical. Uh, yeah, you got you got teachers that used PowerPoints over and over again. That wasn't like my engineering school. I, you know, I kind of went through the 90s and early 2000s with my other degrees where people, actually professors, stood in front of the class and professed knowledge, not reading PowerPoints. So I found a lot of it to be self learning, self-directed learning. And, and that's fine for people like me that can pick up a book and learn anything you want to learn. Just it's a matter of time and energy. Um, but when I'm paying, you know, a large amount of money, I, I really want and expect that somebody's going to step up and do it. So the, the level of difficulty for, for nursing um, in my NP program, to be blatantly honest, wasn't nearly as difficult as my engineering or law. Hmm. It just wasn't. It's it's still challenging. It's time is what the, what was frustrating. It was here. Read these, you know, eighteen chapters in you know six weeks on a summer session of of pathophysiology, and that's pretty daunting, and and not really practical. So you know, it was more time. None of it was difficult. It was really just time, energy. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of students. And that might and... sound. No, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I hope that doesn't sound conceited because that's not my intent. But, you know, the, the perspective that, that, that nurses tend to have when they go through nursing school than NP school is that, you know, we're on par with a lot of other professions. And I, I can tell you from my personal experience, 
it's really not that difficult of an entry point to get into, which which I think needs to change. I, I think that a lot of students and former students of nursing school tend to really relate to you on that, the whole 18 cheer, read these 18 chapters and take five quizzes on it. Yeah, it is, it is a lot of that. And I think... Right. Um, you know, the accelerated programs are definitely growing, especially as nursing becomes a, a second career for many people. And it has been for a long time. So let's right. get to your area of legal expertise. What would you say are the top three legal challenges nurse practitioners face today? And what can they do to protect themselves? All right. Great question. And this is I could spend days talking about this. So if I start going long, please throw a verbal wrench at me and I'll stop. Okay, verbal wrench, Probably the biggest concern that I have for nurse practitioners is understanding scope of practice. And, and it's not as easy as it is for an RN. And in RN world, they teach you in school, these are the things you can and can't do ethically across the board. It's pretty standard, state to state, what you can and can't do. And they even test you on some of that, if I remember right, on the NCLEX. I can't remember, it's a couple of years ago, but I believe that's even on the exam. So when you get into NP world, there's no very definitive hard line that says, these are the things you can do, these are the things you can't do. And then to compound that even more difficult is that there's such a division amongst the educational tracts within nurse practitioner world that some NPs in, say, acute care can do things, whereas family practice NPs can't. So if you want to try to get a job in one area versus another, there's gray areas that crisscross over top of each other. And I often hear, especially on the Facebook forums, and and I get people PMing me and texting me and calling me saying, can I do you know knee injections or can I do uh, Botox injections or how about what, what's my liability for Suboxone in this area of the country? And so it really is very nebulous and difficult to define. And my advice to people is the first thing you have to do is talk to your state board or at least look online and see what their their white papers or, or guidance documents that provide the scope of practice in your jurisdiction. In Ohio, we have a, 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 a challenging board, and not to say that they're bad people, but they don't provide a lot of guidance. So until you make a mistake and get thumped in the skull with a tack hammer to say, don't do that, sometimes you don't know what your scope is supposed to be. So that's probably the biggest difficult um, challenge that I see for NPs. And, and I could honestly go into the black hole of scenario after scenario and analyzing it. But at the end of the day, what it comes down to is if your gut says, I wasn't trained for this, I wasn't taught this in school. I, my collaborative doesn't do this. If I happen to be in a state with a collaborative physician and they don't do that, then I probably shouldn't be doing that either. And so that's, that's kind of a gut check to say, be conservative. Don't overreach what you're not supposed to do and your license should stay safe. Now I have to be very careful because, um, it's easy to confuse your license scope of practice with negligence, okay? And, and this can be ap- applicable for RNs or for um, bricklayers or for anything that has a, a license, hairdressers that have licenses. Your licensing body is the government that says, yes, you're, you, are su- you have sufficient knowledge, training, and skill, and we will provide you this license so that you're allowed to do it. That's your scope of practice within your license bounds. But then on a separate note, there is 
the scope of what you should be doing from a negligence standpoint. Are you trained? Do you have sufficient knowledge, training, and skill that if something goes wrong and you get called into court, you can stand up in front of a jury and say, look, I've been doing this. I've got this training, this skill, this knowledge. I've got all this recorded documentation to prove that. I am well within the bounds of professional to be able to provide that service. And so oftentimes you'll hear people, especially NPs, and it's very frustrating, they convolute both of those two things together, and they are completely separate, independent things. Because the state says you're allowed to do it or doesn't regulate something does not mean that you should be doing it from a negligence standpoint. Does that make sense? Kind of. Okay. And it's hard to, it, it is a tough, tough nut to crack. But if you think about it is your RN license is a license that the state gives you that says you're okay to be able to do this. Right. But if you go into, um, say you're working in a interventional radiology or something like that, and you um, aren't supposed to be doing certain, you know, procedure type things, but the doc is kind of like lenient and lets you start doing those things. But the board doesn't say you can't do it. So you won't necessarily lose your license if you do those things. But if something bad happens in that interventional radiology suite, you could get sued and lose, you know, get in trouble with, with uh, a negligence claim and you could lose your house. Okay. So that's more negligence is more blending the blurring the lines a bit. Yeah, well, negligence is the actual tort claim in law. It's the, you know, somebody suing you. It's, it's the fender bender. Somebody bumps into you with their car and they sue you for, you know, whiplash. You you should have known you, you um, had a duty. You didn't do your duty driving down okay. the road. Um, a reasonable person would have not driven that way, all that stuff. Those types of standards apply in malpractice. So... If, if your listeners are really, really hankering to get into this, into the weeds on this, and don't want to drive off the road and hit a bridge above and fall asleep while listening to this, <laughs> I have probably five or six episodes on my podcast, which we, we can give the information later, where I go down and break down examples of how to, how to analyze a negligence claim. Okay. And I do it over and over again throughout my podcast. So it's, it's, a, nice, it's a nice way to do it. it is a, it's literally two semesters of, of law school. So it's not something we can we can we can kind of hammer out in in a you know twenty minute discussion, but just knowing from an APRN standpoint, there's two sets of things you need to worry about. One is the state guidelines of what you're allowed to do, and then the the negligence theory of what you should be doing that um, or shouldn't be doing to protect yourself from the liability and the malpractice claim itself. All right. So number two, almost everybody wants to know about contracts. In, in APRN world, as an RN, you take the job that's offered to you. Usually you're picking a unit or you're picking a hospital system or you're picking a shift. You know, you want night shift versus day shift or vice versa. And so that's what drives your your choice to work in one facility or another. But in, in APRN world, almost everybody, and I'd say probably well over half of the APRNs out there, have a contract. And that's new for nurses. And they don't teach this in... NP school, at least in, in the ones I've talked to people, they, they just gloss over it in, you know, a, a one post in one week on, you know, show me an example of a contract that you find off the internet. And that's their, you get the points for the class. And the problem is, is that there are things in the contracts that are important that you understand what you're signing up for. And the obvious ones are going to be the term of the contract. Is it a one, two or three year contract? 
Um, you're going to look at things like non-compete clauses, which are very prevalent in APRN contracts. Um, where can you go if you leave? You know, can you go work for a competing firm or not, um, or competing system? The, the problem is, is that people will often, as an RN, graduate and say, okay, I got an offer. The number sounds good. The vacation sounds good. I'm going to sign it. They sign it and they don't really realize what they're signing up for. So when it, when things go south or they want to move on to greener pastures, they, they really are putting a hard spot on how to get out of that deal. And so having good knowledge about your contracts up front is really something that every APRN should be taught in school but isn't. And that's, that's dozens of shows that I do on my podcast over and over again, different issues that come up, different, different nuances of different provisions in the contracts. And um, so you guys have to all listen to every show I do. <laughs> Selfless <laughs> podcast plug. <laughs> no, it's, it's shameless is how I am. But it, it really is that it, most APRNs are very intelligent. I, I, I run into people all the time, and I'm continually surprised at how good we are as a group. And so there is no excuse for the, the level of intelligence that we have in our profession to be able to pick up the document, read the document, do some homework about what the provisions mean, and sign something that doesn't put you into such a, a, a difficult situation to get out of. I've, I've seen people sign contracts where when they leave, they have to pay back fifty, sixty, hundred thousand dollars in damages if they break the contract early. And that's just uncalled for. There's no reason to sign those type of documents. So number one is know your state laws and governing bodies. Number two is know your contracts. Yep, know your scope of practice is number one. And then two is understand contracts. So I have a colleague who recently started some side work as an expert nurse witness for some malpractice suits. Yep. She's told me it's been interesting yep. and it pays really well. Do you know anything about that kind of work? Yep. I'm sure you do. Um, and would you recommend that as a side gig to nurses? So it, it's a great side gig. You do not need to get a legal nurse consulting um, certificate to do that. To, personally, I think a lot of those are scams. That certain personality to be able to do that well is the key to being a good legal nurse consultant. And I'll explain why, and in, 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 I'll try to anyways. As a legal nurse consultant, it's not just picking up charts, reviewing them, and then giving your opinion on whether there is or isn't something that was done wrong. That's part of it, and that's the easy part. The hard part is that you are often called into depositions as an expert witness. So if you do not work well under pressure when somebody is drilling you, an evil, mean, old attorney that's yelling at you, in you know, not really, but just very direct, very harsh, very critical. If you crumble under that kind of pressure, legal nurse consulting is not your gig. It's not even worth going there. Because if you get emotionally attached to an issue and you get upset quickly and you get defensive, you got to stay cool, calm, collected, no matter what they say about you. And you're, you're, you're just a nurse practitioner. You're just a nurse. What do you know? You don't have this skill. you got a physician over here that's saying that you didn't, that, that they did it right. And you're saying they did it wrong. What do you, you know, so you, you really have to be able to just let things roll off your back. Um, and it's not as easy as people make it sound. The money is fantastic at an hourly rate, but it's very short stints. So you'll get one or two days a month, maybe three days a month. It just depends on how, how sought after you are to be able to do that work. The, the key to doing it well 
if you do have that personality, is truly understanding what the lawyer wants from you. And so I, I, do, I do a talk every year for a physical therapy. My, my wife teaches at the physical therapy school here in our town, and um, as well as works in practice. But I do a speech for, the, for uh, malpractice for the PT students, the DPT students. And I do it on this exact issue, is, is understanding the liability as a witness. And so you really need to focus on the negligence theory and know it well and be able to pull out from the record what was missed, what was the standard of care and how was it missed, or what was the standard of care and how it was achieved, depending on which side of the, the case you're on. So it's, it is a great way to make extra money, but if you do it full-time, it's almost as though um, you're going to, to lose that credibility uh, as, as a prov- provider of healthcare services. If you're always doing legal nurse consulting, you, you, you're not the person that we want. We want somebody that's really a top-notch pr- professional, and we pull them over out of that world just for this case, and then they go back to their world. Okay. I can uh, I can really hear the passion in your voice about this topic. What I can see how you got into it, but what keeps you passionate about about you know teaching advanced practice nurses about the legality issues and the ethics issues and educating? What keeps you passionate about continuing to do that? You know, I, I see us as underdogs. I really do in the profession. I, I see every day how physicians are looked up to, and I see there's practitioners as or we're called mid levels and and um, physician extenders and, you know, every other relatively derogatory term. And, and um, I see physicians in my own office make two and a half times what I make, and I have people leaving those physicians in droves to come to me as, a, as their provider. And so I'm the one that's cleaning up the mass in some instances, and yet they get the recognition, they get that, that, that um, prestige. And, and I feel like we do just as good on most cases with most things. Yes, we don't do surgery, but in primary care, we do the same exact job. There's nothing mid-level about us, and that, that's what keeps me going. I want every nurse practitioner to understand what it is they're supposed to be doing, how to get the best deal they can get, and keep themselves safe. It's just the way it needs to be. And if, I, and if everybody does that, if I can, if I can help uh, every day just one person do a better deal and, and cut a better deal than all of us will be propelled further and that much quicker. Yeah, I hope that anyone listening is really inspired to go out and learn more themselves. And, and I hope people who are in charge of advanced practice programs can think, hey, do we have do we have a class on this? Do we have an elective on this? Is this part of our curriculum? Maybe I should go check out this podcast. Like, Hopefully this will sort of inspire <laughs> people listening to really make it part of the curriculum and really part, make us more prepared going into advanced practice nursing as, as we need more advanced practice nurses um, out there because we just need more people with prescriptive authority. And there's just more older, sicker people to take care of, so we just need more of those people. So, yeah, I it's, agree. It, it, yep, and, it, and it's, uh, it's needed for sure. That's a, you hit the nail on the head. And anybody that is out there that is an educator that would love to talk to me, you can email me, and uh, I'm sure the contact information will be published on your show, and uh, they can get in touch with me, and, and we'll go from there. I'll be glad to give them information. Carolyn Bupert is, um, is the known authority as a legal um, NP, and she literally wrote the book on it. And I, I read it when I, was, when I was in NP school, but the problem was is that this, the, the, the professors that taught it didn't really understand what was in there. 
and it was a good book. So it is a good text that's out there. There is a text out there for people to go to. And a lot of people have read that book and, and I encourage that book. I, I, I think it's okay. I don't think it's great, but it's okay. The, the, but at least there's something. So there, there's no excuse as a provider to not um, keep your license safe. And, and I hear people often say, well, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to. And that is never an excuse. That's you know, honest officer. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to speed. <laughs> the cops don't care. And that, that's another thing. It's just a good point to bring up. I guess I kind of stumbled across it is that I, I see so many times again and again that nurses and nurse practitioners believe that the state board of nursing is there to help you. And that's a, that's a, that's a fallacy. The state board of nursing are the cops that are there to protect the public from you. So I see people admit to the board in emails, well, I've been doing it this way and I guess I'm not supposed to. Can you clarify? Well, you just admitted to the cops that you were carrying pot (laughs) or whatever, right? I mean, so you basically just handed them a claim against you to take your license away. They're They're not your board that protects you. They protect the public from you. And as soon as you realize that and understand that, not to say you're not supposed to be helpful and friendly with the board, but they're not there to help us. That's a really good point, and I think a lot of people listening will really appreciate the facts on that on that topic. Um, I got one Facebook question from uh, my Facebook page. This is from Hannah, and uh, her question is, what should bedside nurses, so non-advanced practice nurses, what should we be doing to protect ourselves legally? Oh, good question. Okay, so um, hi, Hannah. <laughs> Thanks for having me, and hopefully you can get something out of this. Um, it, there's a couple things you could do. The, the first thing you want to do, just as any professional, you need to have your own liability insurance policy, period. I don't care if you're an RN. I don't care if you're an APRN. I don't care if you're a physician. You need to have your own policy. No one needs to know about it but you. So you don't need to tell anybody. I often hear times uh, hear people say, um, well, if you have your own liability insurance, then then you're more of a target. Well, not if they don't know you have mal- malpractice insurance. Who's going to know about it? It's a it's a contract between you and an insurance company. No one needs to know about it. If there's ever a problem, you call them and say, look, I think I'm in hot water. Most insurance policies will cover you not only for malpractice if you mess up or fail to do something you were supposed to do, but they'll also help you with board actions. So if you get called in front of the State Board of Nursing, for a potential issue, then you've got somebody that you can call and say, look, I, I need to get my attorney with me. We have to go to the board hearing. And you've got somebody in the nice fancy suit with shiny shoes sitting next to you when you go to the board. So that's number one is get your own malpractice. I think RN policies are a couple hundred bucks a year. It's negligible con- compared to the peace of mind. And if you ever have a problem, you could drop $20,000 just fighting a board action. So it's it's well worth it just right there. That is um, shocking to me. That is shocking to me, Jeff. I always thought it was such yeah, a... And I bet most RNs, yeah, I bet most RNs do not carry their own malpractice policy. I, I don't, yeah. Interesting. The, the key here is that your company, although you see, you fall a little bit under what's called um, respondent superior is the legal word for it. And it basically means that your, your superior is going to respond on your behalf if you screw up. Okay. The problem is, is that they'll settle a claim if you and the hospital are named in a lawsuit and their malpractice is covering you and you fall in and you say, okay, I'll go with the hospital because I'm too cheap to 
get my own lawyer, and they settle the claim, you might have a claim against you that affects your personal credit for years to come. So if you wanted to buy a house or buy a new car or get a loan, you're, it'll show up on your credit score. So you have to be very, very careful just following blindly what someone else's interests are because you need somebody on your side, not the hospital side, because they'll throw you under a bus if they have to. Wow. Yeah, I've always told, because I've had new nurses, I, I train new nurses, and like their question is, you know, I get this stuff in the mail from the board, you know, like as soon as your name is on the registered nurse list, you get all sorts of mail from all sorts of continuing education, yep. all this other stuff. So, and then insurance, like if you're a newly registered nurse, you get like all this boatload of stuff in the mail about, you know, your your malpractice right. insurance and stuff. And, and the advice that I have always received was, as long as you practice under your institutional policy, and you go with that, then you should be protected under under their insurance. That, that's where I was going to go next, is that the second way you protect yourself is to follow the institutional policies. So the, the likelihood of it being a problem is low, but it can still very, very, very much happen. And so for a couple hundred bucks a year, it's worth it. It really is. And, and not only for that purpose, but if, if say, it's a questionable issue, here, here's, a, here's a circumstance that I had seen personally in the ICU, and it made me feel sketchy. I saw nurses with 30 years' experience go over to the Pixis machine and, and grab, grab um, um, nifedipine or you know, epi or whatever, right out of it, atropine, without following standard protocols and go ram it in somebody's body to save their life, and appropriately so, but not with an order. And so were they acting within the protocols? No, they did what was right to save the human, but not per the protocol. And so I was always like, dude, I, I don't feel kind of, that's not one of our protocols here. You, you don't just get to go grab nifedipine and, and start infusing. I, I, you, that's where that gray area comes in, especially when you know good nurses that do things occasionally, once in a while, that's a little bit borderline you can get thrown under the bus pretty quickly. Well, thank you for your frank advice. I am a little nervous now. <laughs> Scary, right? Yeah, yeah you can't it tell is. Me you haven't seen people do stuff like that, right? Well, yeah. You, know, I you mean, don't because... have the order for that, but you know, you know, you need to do it. You know, they're right. going to order it. You've done it a hundred times this week alone. It's going to happen, but I don't have time for this person, or they're going to expire. And which is worse, the person dying or me, you know, maybe getting in trouble. It's not a great place to be in. Right. And then you have to like so many things I think are protocolized now too. like when you're saying rushing to the Pixis to get something to save someone's life. And that's where in my brain I'm trying to think of the technicalities. Like if someone has an ACLS order, right, then the drugs that you can give them. It's a different thing. Yeah, you got your atropine and stuff. Yeah, right. You can go crack the box and start doing that stuff. That's, right. that's different. But I've seen other stuff that I'm like, that's a little, a little sketchy. Bit. Okay. I wouldn't have done that. Okay. Yeah. All right, yeah. guys. That's a great question from Hannah. Great answer from Jeff. Thank you. It is, that's a that's a great, great question. Um, as far as the rest of it, it's it's really, um, I, I guess, and not so much that will save you from liability, but the the thing that makes us one of the least sued professions is the personal nature that we provide to our patients and the families. Mm-hmm. So if you are the person that's in there being nice, being professional, explaining things, doing what you're supposed to do, and despite someone else's error, it will be very difficult for that that family to say, you know what, Jeff, I'm going to sue that guy too. So almost never does the nurse get named if you did your job and you and you were polite and professional and did it. Very seldom do we get, we're only sued about 5% of the, the malpractice claims. 
So it's a very low number relative to physicians. I want to say it's like 18 or 25%. It's, it's, in, it's double digits. Okay. Well, so I feel a little better. Yeah, you're, you're doing fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all, that's all great, awesome stuff, Jeff. I think it's, it's really enlightened me, and I think it'll enlighten the, the guests. Um, I, got, I got one final question really for you. Um, you know, I'm a complete nerd for storytelling, and I, I love collecting people's stories and, and sharing them out there. So I was hoping you might share with us an extraordinary story from either your nursing work or your NP work or your legal work that, that sticks with you. I mean, I, I could name story after story of just weird situations, but none of them are I'm, I'm necessarily excited to explain or proud of because it's usually somebody's bad day. <laughs> you know what I mean? But um, probably the biggest experience that sticks with me was my last patient at the Cleveland Clinic. My very last patient there passed away. I mean, talk about bad career ending, right? And it was a patient that... Um, had not have had a bowel movement for like three weeks. He was in his late seventies, early eighties, was perfectly functional, healthy human being up until this point, and um, went in septic to the to the ER. And the the physician that was the general surgeon went and saw him in the ER. Said we're going to send him to ICU. We're probably going to open him up. It doesn't look good. He's extremely septic, very hypotensive, um, and. Um, so that was that was it. So this is my patient. I come on my shift. He just was getting there. I got him all cleaned up, got him set up. Surgery was coming. Um, they took him away. And um, what what I remember the most, and it was probably the the biggest thing that sealed my my fate in primary care, was that the anesthesia people and the surgeon came back with him and said he coded three times. And they pushed his bed back into the ICU room. And before the wheels locked, all of them ran away. There wasn't a single one of them to be found. And um, because they, I, my suspicion is they didn't want the record of somebody dying in the OR or on their, they wanted to die and expire in the ICU. And that to me was, wow, I can't believe that professionals that take care of humans, this isn't a piece of meat. This is a human. This is someone that had, you know, his family's right here. And um, what was most most bizarre about the story was that the brother of, of um, the patient was there and said that their other brother passed away in that room about a year before that. And it just kind of sunk in. And he said, you know, I, I got the chaplain there. I got I kept him alive until all the family could get there. And um, he pulled me aside and said, you know, you gave my brother a good death. And that that was that really sunk in. And so, you know, it, when when you can help somebody die um, and, and help them do it in, in a in, in not there's never a graceful way, but in a way that is is um, meaningful and um, at least to the family, that that's awesome. And so, um, you know, you don't get that in engineering and you don't get that in law. So we have a very, very just an awesome profession. And so you, you've got people that are just kicking ass and doing great jobs. So um, I would encourage all of you guys do it for the right reasons. Yeah. As, as an ICU nurse, I, I, I totally agree. A lot of times, a, a lot of our primary function is to give people good deaths and then you can go to go get your APRN and be in primary care where you can give people good lives. <laughs> so good to Good job, <laughs> Jeff. Cool. And, uh, yeah, thanks for sharing that story. It's it's heavy-hearted, but at the end of the day, you're right. You know, giving someone 
a peaceful way to meet their maker is is, is a win at the end of the day, yep. even though it's it's heavy hearted. But um, but maybe that is inspiring to some of you out there to go look at getting your advanced practice nurse. Not me, not not me, but <laughs> some of them out there. You never know. That's true. That's true. That's true. Well, thank you so much, Jeff. I enjoyed everything you had to say. I think it was really enlightening for uh, for me and a lot of people out there. So thanks for sharing your knowledge. Well, I appreciate being on, and, and uh, I, I just had a lot of fun. And I know it was hard for us to get connect, but um, I think it was well worth it from my perspective. I had a great time, so thank you for having me. You're welcome. Thanks so much. Um, if you guys want to go check out the NP Dude podcast, you can find it on iTunes. And where else, Jeff, can you find it? Pretty much anywhere that you can find any podcast app. There, It's on all of them. So um, my website is Z as in the NP Dude, not D as in dog because I do not have a doctorate in nurse practitioner, but it's uh, T-H-E-N-P-D-U-D-E dot com. All right, guys, go check it out. Thanks so much. And there you have it. Thanks to Jeff of the NP Dude podcast. Check the show notes to find the links to his podcast and his website. Thank you to the podcast sponsor, Lux Pillow. How is that holiday stress treating everyone? Night shifts in between family gatherings? Lack of sleep over your overly organized Excel spreadsheets on Thanksgiving dinner? It sounds like maybe you could use some quality R&R this holiday season, and you can do that with one of Lux Pillows' luxury pillows. And as a part of the Head to Toe Nation, you can get a 10% discount with the checkout code Head to Toe, all one word. Head to LuxPillow.com to get your best sleep today. Okay, what's next on the podcast, you might ask? Well, I'm excited to tell you guys, I'm gearing up for the third annual Best Stories podcast episode. It will be published on New Year's Eve, as is tradition, and it will consist of reflections on the best healthcare stories from 2018, and your story could be part of it. Consider this your official invitation to participate in the annual end of your podcast. Email me your best story from 2018 at macmillanpages at gmail.com with the subject line, best stories, and let's see if we can't get your voice on the podcast. As always, please subscribe, rate, and review the show however you're listening to it. Follow me on Facebook, LinkedIn, and find all my creative work at mariemcmillan.com. Thanks again one more time to Jeff from the NP Dude Podcast, and that's all for now. Have a safe and happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Take care.